Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Guido Ruggiero for a conversation about romance during the plague in the 14th century. Dr. Ruggiero is Professor of History, Cooper Fellow of the College of Arts and Sciences at University of Miami, based in the U.S., He has written many publications over his career, including a couple books as examples. The first one, The Renaissance in Italy, which was published by Cambridge University Press. And the second one, which is forthcoming on June 1st, 2021. So from the vantage point of when this episode will be published, that's tomorrow. And is entitled Love and Sex in the Time of Plague, which will be published by Harvard University Press. Welcome to the call, Guido. Hello. So to create some background and context for this conversation, the Black Death, the uh, epithet, uh, the plague, what what is it? Okay, at one time we were quite sure what the Black Death was. It was a bubonic plague that scientists identified at the turn of the 20th century in, in the East. Uh, as the same disease that was described widely during the uh, 1348 plague in Florence, Venice, and across Europe. Um, It seemed to have the same uh, type of uh, symptoms. It was deadly like the plague at the turn of the 20th century. And it seemed to follow the same kind of etiology, the same kind of uh, transmission. The transmission was, uh, as was discovered only in the 19th, at the the turn of the 19th century, through uh, rats. Rats carried the plague uh, bacillus and this was the, the fleas from the rats jumped to human beings uh, and carried the infection with them. Humans then uh, developed the disease and died in large numbers. Um, and this was seen as particularly interesting, particularly interesting phenomenon because it seemed to be associated with what we might call the first development of a world economy. Uh, in the 14th century. Actually, starting a little earlier, uh, trade around the world really got going again. Uh, And the cities of northern Italy, like Florence, were centers for that trade, with goods coming from around the world back to Florence, um, creating a kind of, for the first time, a unified biological zone, you might say, which allowed for the transmission of disease. So when the biological connection was made through trade, the uh, disease actually had a vector to get into Europe Mm. and encountered an unprotected population where it spread like wildfire. There's only one, well, there are many problems with this wonderful explanation which pulls together many things uh, that are so richly explanatory, you might say. Um, 
And that is when scientists and historians began to look close, more closely at what uh, that plague was in the 14th century, they began to see things that didn't quite fit. For example, both the modern plague and the uh, 1348 plague had buboes. These are these growths that come in under your arms and on your body, uh, quite noticeable, quite uh, terrible and frightening that are soon followed by death in three or four days or recovery, actually quite often by recovery. Uh, so we see both of those things. But what we also began to see was that there were other symptoms that didn't quite fit and other things that made some historians wonder what was going on. For example, in modern plague, when uh, the plague begins to hit a population, large numbers of rats die. Hundreds of thousands of rats die. Why is that? Because they get the disease too and they die. And it's necessary for them to die so that the fleas then turn to human hosts to transmit the disease. Um, the fleas, there's no telling about taste, the fleas actually much prefer rats as their host than humans. So they only come to humans when the rats die. Okay. In fact, even before the etiology of the disease was understood, local peasant populations in the East where uh, the plague was endemic, recognized that when it was about to take off, there would be a large die off of rats and always referred to that as the first sign of the plague taking off. There's no mention of this in our sources from the Renaissance in the 14th century. No mention. They mention large animals dying. They mention all kinds of natural events that seem to signal the beginning of the plague. But no one, no one mentions tens of thousands of rats dying. And in order for this disease to work, it had to have that. Another thing that began to trouble historians and doctors who studied the history of medicine was that quickly these disease, the buboes, those kinds of signs of the plague began to disappear and were replaced by um, black spotches on the body or bleeding from the nose and the mouth. And this was followed immediately by death not after two or three days, but not only immediately, but almost for everyone. The, 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 the death rate was much, much higher. Um, but we don't see this with modern bubonic plague. These and other problems seem to suggest that it's not so simple. The bubonic plague the tw and the 14th century plague are not quite the same thing. And in fact, mm. most scholars now are beginning to say, um, we don't know. We really simply don't know what disease it was. 
And in fact, if you think about the plague, the pandemic today, you can see on your own without being a scholar that it's changing very, very rapidly. Its etiology is changing rapidly. Um, its nature is changing rapidly. Um, and to assume that a disease will be the same 500 years later as the disease we encountered in 1348 is a big jump. So uh, a number, I think, of the more advanced scholars are saying, you don't know. One thing that qualifies that and tends to return some to the old vision that it's rats and fleas and that vector is DNA analysis of bones from sites where plague victims were supposedly buried seem to confirm that the DNA is the same as the modern disease. Um, but one wonders how accurate such DNA analysis can, can be over such a long range of time. And certainly many of the signs that we know for sure about the 1348 plague do not match the modern disease. I could go on. Some of them are quite dramatic, but I don't know if we want to take too much time on that. No, I or think the we... point, yeah, I think you've il illustrated the point very, very well, that there's, cons there's, there's reason to believe that the modern plague, uh, bubonic plague, is not the same as what the plague in the 14th century. So what's known about, between people, how the plague of the 14th century was transmitted? It seems fairly clear that the most devastating form of the plague was transmitted by contact or by, like our current pandemic, by um, aerosol, by uh, coughing uh, in the vicinity of each other. The difference is our current pandemic, although it's terrifying and deadly, is much, much, much less deadly. If you think about Florence, Florence in 1300, 48 years before the plague hit, had about 100,000 people. A year after the plague hit, Florence was lucky to have 40,000 people remaining. Uh, more than half the population died. That was true in Northern Italy as well and across much of the rest of Europe. In some places, as much as two-thirds of the population died. So while our situation is dramatic, that situation was devastating. And the literature from the period, uh, as you might expect, is loaded with panic and fear uh, and deeply, deeply troubled by this massive die-off even in an age when death was relatively more uh, common than today and life expectancy was much shorter. Still, it was a devastating, devastating novelty. Um, so, What was religion saying about the plague during that time? So if we go by, so it's 14th century, 
Italy. So let's start with what was the primary religion at that time in that region? Okay, it, it's the Catholic Church, obviously. It is the religion. Most cities had a small Jewish community, which was periodically thrown out at, as people became worried about having Jews in their midst. But uh, other religions were only known of. They didn't actually coexist, uh, except in cities like Venice, where Muslim traders actually had their own little fondico, their own little kind of building where they were allowed to stay and trade from, but they were isolated. Uh, other religions were largely isolated. Um, there were also slaves uh, who probably were Muslims, but uh, they, they could not practice. The religion wasn't recognized. So it was Catholic, Catholic Christianity. What was the Catholic Church saying publicly to people during the plague? Um, actually, during the plague, very little, because the church was devastated like everybody else. Churchmen were dying off as much or worse than the regular population, because those who were really committed to their mission of healing and dealing with people in trouble were more exposed, obviously. Many rich people fled to the countryside trying to avoid the plague, and some of them managed to survive as a result of that. But churchmen, like doctors, were on the front line and died more than, anything, more than saying anything else. But to answer your question probably a little better, it's wise to take a step back and look at the religious climate of the 13th and 14th century leading up to the plague because that was quite significant in how the plague was reacted to. Mm -hmm. Now, as you know, and as today has begun to be seen again in some fundamentalist sects, Christianity has always had this idea that the end of time was near, that God was going to come uh, and there was going to be a final judgment when the damned would be damned for good and the saved would be saved and live happily ever after in loving relationship uh, with God. Um, and over the centuries, the church had developed a quite sophisticated, you might call, call it um, semiotics, a kind of reading of signs of when those last times were going to happen. And there were many things in the 13th and 14th century that made people assume that the last times were near. And this was not just fundamentalists that felt this. This was also strongly felt and taught by the church, by popes, by leading theologians. There was, there was an expectation that the end was near, that it would come any time. And I could, there was actually, um, theologians who calculated when the end should come and had calculated with quite sophisticated numbers that it should be coming about now, even a little earlier. It was actually a little later than most of them anticipated. Um, so there was that. Um, but there was also another vision 
which we've kind of forgotten, although it again has begun to peek through in some fundamentalist sects today. And this is the idea that Christianity is actually controlled by a trinity, a single God, but in three figures. The first figure is God the Father, obviously. And in this vision, the human history was dominated by God the Father from the fall of Adam and Eve through the coming of Christ. That period was controlled by what the Old Testament set out, the rules that it set out for the relationship with God. Okay? With the coming of Christ, the second person in the Trinity, everything changed dramatically. Christ brought love. He died on the cross to save humanity out of love, God's love for humanity. So God's relationship to man changed in a fundamental way from the wrath of the Old Testament to the love of the New Testament. And the New Testament sets out the rules for that age, okay? But where there's two in Catholicism and most Protestant sects as well, there is the third, the Holy Spirit, or as I as a child like to call him, the Holy Ghost, you know, who's out there roaming around someplace. It seemed fairly neat to me. I was mm. more impressed by the Holy Ghost than the other two. Mm. But anyway, the Holy Spirit in this vision should have his age or its age as well. Um, and again, theologians calculated the distance between the fall as described in the Bible to the coming of Christ, uh, the number of years, and then figured the same number of years would apply before the coming of the last age, the third age, the age of the Holy Spirit. And lo and behold, people from about the middle of the 13th century we're preaching all over Europe that this age was about to arrive. And in fact, for political reasons, tensions with the papacy in Florence, these people were particularly powerful, particularly protected by the government. So in fact, at the time of the plague and afterwards, people there, preachers there were preaching that a third age was about to arrive. And of course, a perfect sign of the third age was the plague itself. Because the third age would be preceded by the destruction of the Catholic Church to clear the way for the age of the Holy Spirit. Catholic Church would no longer be necessary. People would live in perfect loving relationship with God through the Holy, through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So, um, needless to say, these very powerful ideas that were well established in society exploded with a plague, and many people expected that this third age was about to begin. Um, in fact, a number of sects grew up, uh, which we remember almost not at all today which featured the idea that the third age was about to begin. Of course, it, it didn't begin. As I say rather ironically in the Renaissance in Italy book, perhaps the third age 
actually did begin, but it was the age of money and international trade and investment rather than the age of Holy Spirit and loving relationship directly with God. But hmm. that's an ironic aside. So, yes, when the plague hit, although for a moment the church was relatively non-existent, was trying to cope with it. Soon afterwards, there were strong strains of um, this is heralding the change. The mainstream church, however, resisted this, obviously, uh, and they tended to present the plague as God's punishment for the immoral ways of the world uh, that had grown in their perspective and actually grown in the perspective of the general society over the last couple hundreds of years as in northern Italy, life had changed from basically rural, dominated by a nobil an old nobility who made their wealth from the land, to basically urban with a new elite made up of merchants, bankers, lawyers, doctors, who were not noble at all, who had no formal claim to be on top of society and dominated it but were, in fact, dominating. And this, obviously, was deeply troubling to a society that was very traditional uh, before. It, se it seemed like a revolutionary change, and it seemed to carry with it all kinds of immorality that uh, people could see God as punishing with the plague. So, in a way, from the perspective of the church and most people, the plague presented um, a kind of challenge to a new order that was developing in Italy, uh, economic and social order. that um, was pretty well established, but still um, questionable. So, uh, yeah, the church attacked this in terms of morality, what was in some ways attacking these changes as well. I... I'm going to ask a, a broader question in a moment, but as a, a preempt question, what do scholars believe is the length of time of the plague? It lasted. It, it la it's last. It lasted for a year and a year and a half, but its most intense period was across those summers of 1348 and then later in 1349. It kind of came and went, but it was basically a summer disease. Um, it went away after killing off such a large portion of the population, but it then began, it came back periodically every 15 to 20 years, kind of generationally, which also doesn't fit the way the plague works, by the way, the modern bubonic plague. How did mating work and function from a relational, a belief system during this period? Okay, obviously this fits in in interesting ways with the, the preaching of the church that the plague was caused by uh, the sins and the changes that had occurred in society. Because a more urban society with large numbers of people kind of marginally living uh, in cities like Florence and Venice 
created a very different uh, marital mating courting situation than had been there before. Very troublingly different. Um, and this is still an area of intense debate by historians because when they read, when we read the literature of the period, what we see is a society where adultery was widely practiced, was actually um, lauded as the only form of true love, uh, the best form of love, and marital relationships were seen as a kind of duty, a kind of binding that uh, did not allow for true love. And in fact, was best not arranged based on love because it was a dangerous fleeting passion. Um, okay. Historians and students of literature who saw this in literature for the longest time tended to say, but this is a Catholic society. This is impossible. This is a fantasy realm of literature uh, that wasn't being lived. That uh, moreover, without birth control, uh, with strong senses of honor and things like that, uh, it just couldn't have been this way. So we've got a kind of literature that is fantasy. Actually, when I started out uh, longer ago than I want to uh, confess at the moment, I mm -hmm. uh, believe that as well. And one of the reasons I began to study uh, the history of sexuality was because I wanted to understand how there could be this tremendous disjunction between practice and these literary reflections of the way life was led. Uh, and in my second book, which we don't need to talk about, uh, The Boundaries of Eros, Sex, Crime, and Sexuality in Renaissance Venice, I look more closely at sex crime to see what it said not about the crimes themselves, but how the society viewed things like adultery, fornication, rape, uh, these kinds of things, these sex practices that were punished, uh, how society actually responded to those things, how they viewed those things. What I found in those criminal documents was a clear sign that the society was much more forgiving than we might anticipate much more accepting of these kinds of things and more concerned with um, settling family tensions, tensions between family, than with actually controlling this kind of behavior. Um, the more work I did in the archives, the more and more I came to see that while literature and practice do not match up perfectly, they almost never do. One is an imaginary world where we imagine things as we would like them to be. 
And the other is a practical world where things happen whether we want them to or not. But the, uh, reading closely, you can see that much of what literature idealized was practiced at a different level. So um, this opens up a whole wave of things that we have to rethink. Things that we thought we knew about the period that we really didn't know. Um, at the most simple level, love, marriage, courtship, relationship between the sexes and between people of the same sex, although they often are described with words that are familiar to us, when we look more closely at how they were practiced, were practiced in decidedly different ways for very complex and very interesting reasons. One of the things that makes studying the history of sexuality uh, so fascinating. For example, let's take something like marriage, okay, and adultery, okay. We think we, we know what marriage and adultery are today. I don't need to define them for you. It's not like love, which is hard to define. Uh, but marriage was very, very different in 14th century Italy. Uh, a normal marriage was arranged by parents, usually male members of the family at all social levels from the highest to the lowest. It was arranged normally with a girl as soon as she reached puberty. In other words, about 12 to 14 years old, being married to a mature male, usually in his late twenties or early thirties already tremendously different from the world we live in today. Moreover, the marriage was not arranged for love. Love was seen as a dangerous emotion that families should keep out of these kinds of uh, situations because it was a fleeting emotion that could not last and form the basis for a long lasting relationship. So fathers wisely picked husbands who could, well, should we say dominate? Let's not say that. Let's be more political and say who could lead their young wives into a long, fruitful relationship where at best friendship was involved and at least discipline and order were maintained the social order that the family was supposed to provide for society. That's what marriage was about, providing social order that allow, allied families and allowed them to survive. Now, there's some difference at social levels. Uh, the very young marriage and old, with older men was more typical of upper classes. Lower class marriages were closer in age, women usually married by about 17 or 18, and males usually married as soon as they had a trade where they could support a family at 22 or 23. And in those marriages, some courtship might have been allowed because 
selecting a female, selecting a woman mate, uh, also involved selecting somebody who could help the family unit survive uh, economically. Uh, But still, that was far from the ideal. And farther down the social scale were a large number of people who are very largely invisible to history existed. They hardly married at all. They lived in informal unions. Uh, they couldn't afford to pay a priest to marry them. They didn't bother. Uh, and they floated in and out of those relationships uh, as life, as exigencies of life required or seemed to require to them. The other thing that was very different about marriage and that we should remember is the way it was put together, which created great problems. The church had decided in the high middle ages that marriage would be a sacrament, but that marriage would be uh, essentially contracted on the basis of consent. The only thing you needed to marry was to give your consent to the other person that you would marry them. When consent was exchanged, sex was then allowed and you were married. Um, So marriage was quick and uncertain uh, because as the husband, I could say yes today and then tomorrow say, no, I was tricked. No, that's not true. No, it didn't really happen. Um, and as a result, we have all kinds of uh, course cases before uh, the church where these kinds of uh, exchanges of consent are contested uh, to see whether you're married or not. This allowed, however, for people, young people, to uh, escape from the control of their parents. You could run off together exchange consent and as far as the church was concerned you were married as far as society government was concerned you were married as far as your family was concerned they were very upset because their plans had been overturned so this thing called marriage that seems something we all know when we see the word marriage we know what that is it's not what it was in the 14th century It was a very, very different animal. And there was lots of room for contestation or violence. Uh, If true love could only be expressed in free relationships between a man and a woman or between two men, uh, these relationships could not be controlled by marriage. Uh, Marriage is an unfree relationship. You're bound together. You have no choice. That's your partner, okay? Uh, So in literature, as in criminal cases, we see people who love each other, who use love as their excuse, uh, being forced, really, to have, in order to have a free relationship, to have it outside of marriage. Did the construct of marriage change at all during the plague? Yeah, that's one of the things that I deal with in quite a bit of detail in the new book. Because one of the things that I argue there is that some people 
uh, use literature to suggest a different model, a radically different model. And that was that uh, arranged marriages were a bad idea. They created unhappy relationships that lasted as long as the people could stand each other because divorce was difficult. Separation was possible, but divorce was not. Um, so it was kind of an, a strange idea at the time, although it's, it's so obvious from a or so normal, quote unquote, from a modern perspective, uh, some people began to defend the idea that marriages should be based on love. Uh, especially at the upper class levels. And that courtship should be involved in developing a relationship where love was the key factor in actually forming the marriage. Um, now, some people began to say courtship would allow for the development of a relationship that could be tested over time and that would be uh, a possible base marriage and a companionate relationship that could last happily for the rest of one's life. Um, now, this idea is so familiar to us that it's often been passed over by people reading the literature of the people, period, because they don't see it as strange. But at the time, it was a really radical idea. Hmm. It was an idea that most readers would have said, no way, that's ridiculous. And in fact, when you read the literature, you see that writers like Boccaccio, who wrote the Decameron, which includes a hundred stories about most of which are about love uh, and things of this nature. Boccaccio, when he tells stories of this young love, that's going to end up in a marriage. He stops the tale to explain to his readers why they should think that this might possibly work because it's such a ridiculous idea at the time that it might work. Everybody knew that love was fast, rapidly changing, unreliable, dangerous, etc., etc. Uh, that Boccaccio to say, yes, but you know, this will make a better marriage and this will be the base of a better civilization after the plague. Because now we have to rebuild the family structures. The families have been destroyed. The social structure of society has been destroyed in this great die-off. We have to find a way to reorganize society that will make it more civil, more civilized, uh, not in the modern sense, but in the sense of being able to live together in an urban environment of 100,000 people or so, uh, peacefully and quietly, without people running out into the streets, stabbing each other because of adultery, or uh, uh, raping young girls to carry them off, uh, whatever. If we could only have love relationships built on courtship that turn into marriage that's happy and long-lasting, we'll have a different society. Uh, a better society, as far as the church is concerned, speaking to the church, a society where sins like adultery and fornication are not condoned, where prostitutes are not necessary uh, because we have loving relationships 
at the base of the family base of society. Hmm. But utopia, uh, and it's not what actually happens afterwards. In fact, it kind of falls away, but still, um, that was a program that some literature suggested as a possible positive change. Hmm. Um, what what was it, Guiddle, about the impact of the plague that may have caused people like Boccaccio to come up with these types of theories? Well, I think it's a two it, many things, but two major factors. On the one hand, it's that Boccaccio was definitely afraid that, like most people, that the plague was a punishment for these kinds of sins and immorality, the immorality that were involved with the old system of marriage, love and adultery, things of that sort. So if we can get rid of that system, uh, perhaps we won't be punished again as we were punished by the plague. Uh, but the other side is perhaps from our perspective, uh, not necessarily from his, a more reasonable vision that uh, these arranged marriages did not work. They did not work, um, especially with this great distance in age. Um, when you read, Boccaccio is a good read. It's really fun to read. It's not as wild and sexy as it's often portrayed, mm. but it's kind of racy and very revealing about the life of the time and the way it was imagined and lived. Um, and did you mention earlier that adultery statistically went up during the plague? Or did uh, I not hear that correctly? What's interesting, and I didn't, um, and you know, statistics are really bad for this period. Uh, and adultery statistics for every period are bad. I mean, I, I'd like, I'd be very curious as a historian of sexuality to know what the real statistics of adultery are or were, say, in the 50s and 60s in the United States before the supposed sexual revolution. As a young child, my assumption was unthinkable absolutely nothing you know this was a straight-laced society where there was no such thing as adultery looking back at my memories of childhood and looking at the families around me and the relationships with a more mm, cynical eye i see lots of signs that there was much more adultery than uh, people uh, were given credit for um so you know, statistics like crime statistics are always dangerous statistics. And I always tell my students, don't make comparisons about how many or how much. Um, I can do, I do have a statistic, however, that I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. That's way when, when I was first uh, doing sex crimes, I assumed that the plague, you know, wiping out more than half the population of Venice, which I was working on, uh, would mean that the number of sex crimes would go down. 
Moreover, the criminal system virtually broke down. As I was reading these documents, I was watching the notaries die. You know, the one hand would go ahead and then end, and a new hand would come in a day later because presumably my scribe had died, and it would go week by week. In fact, there's an interesting anecdote. Uh, as I was reading this, I noticed my documents were on parchment, animal skin, and I noticed some hairs from the animal that had been killed to make the parchment that my criminal records were being written on. And I had this realization, this is biological from the period of the plague. I'm touching something where the, the, the scribe was dying. I rushed out to the bathroom and washed my hands several times, unnecessarily, obviously. I doubt if any bacteria could have survived 500 years. At least I, I didn't contract the plague. But anyhow, I'm watching the scribes die. Uh, and I'm saying, okay, when I do my numbers, I'm going to see a tremendous drop off. Not just because there are fewer people to commit sex crimes, but there are fewer, uh, you know, the, the system isn't working. So I'm going to have fewer cases that way as well. When I did the figures, there was no drop off whatsoever. The figures were consistent right across the period. We go from 100,000 people to 40,000 people. We go from a strongly, effectively functioning government by the standards of the time, to a government that was weak and not very well functioning, but the crime records remain the same. My conclusion was, and still is, that uh, the crime is just skimming off the top of a much wider, broader range of illicit activity. And it continues to skim off at the several, same level, the same number of cases, which is the number of cases the government can handle, uh, not the actual number of cases at all. So uh, as far as the statistics are concerned, nothing changes across the plague. As far as reality is concerned, um, I don't know. I don't know. My guess today, and it's guess with an exclamation mark, is that nothing much changed either. Literary people like Boccaccio, preachers, uh, intellectuals, hoped that things would change. They wrote treatises about how things should change. Uh, people who were expecting the end of the world expected things to change. But in fact, if anything, things remained the same and became stronger yet. During the plague, whether in, in a marriage or not in a marriage, do you have any reason to believe, like how frequent were people still having sex? And do you think people were concerned at all about catching the plague more frequently if they were having that kind of physical contact? Well, the, the last question, um, I, I let me quickly deal with it. And the mm -hmm. first one is more complex and interesting, perhaps. Um, 
certainly literature refers to the fact that some people respond to the plague by just doing everything they ever wanted to do without worrying about it. Uh, and we're having sex everywhere and, you know, wild, wild and crazy time for a small group of people. Uh, is that literature, literary fantasy or is that fact? It's hard to judge mm. because again, such a short period of time that we don't have much information. Uh, that we can judge on. Um, how frequently did people have sex? Uh, and, and this is still a hotly contested question. Uh, I think probably it doesn't really change much across the plague, by the way, but that's another, another issue. The typical uh, position of traditional scholars is amount, the amount of sex people had was very limited because obviously childbirth was a problem. And there was no uh, birth control. Uh, okay. On both counts, I think they're wrong. First, uh, criminal records show, uh, the diary records show, the literary uh, text suggests that sex was frequent and important, an important part of life and highly sought after. Okay. Um, the second part, people did know about forms of birth control and what we might call indirect control of birth. Do you believe that sex then stayed very prevalent during the plague? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, it was so short. Remember, we're talking about, we're not talking about today's pandemic, which is dragging on. Uh, we're talking about an intense period of die off across the summer or across two summers. So mm -hmm. I assume in that period of intense die off, you know, clearly there was less sex. For most people, although, as I say, reports are that some people uh, took advantage of the situation and, you know, involved, got involved in orgies and satisfying all their desires because they were afraid they were going to die anyhow. But that's, mm. that's un, you know, there's no, I think, deep proof of that. Uh, that could well be just a fantasy about what happened. Was, ma was marriage still common then? It's presumed during the plague? It's too short a period to really know. Okay. What I can, you know. It, That's fair. What I can say is there's no drop off in marriage in the period, okay? In the longer run. So if we take the, compare the 1340s to the 1350s, there's no drop off in marriage. In fact, in the 1350s, there probably is more marriage because the people who survived have inherited the wealth of their larger families, the wealth that remained. So they had a stronger economic position all the way down the social scale, and thus it was easier for them to marry and advantageous for them to marry as well. So, um, again... The numbers are probably smaller because there are fewer people. Uh, mm. Almost certainly smaller because there are fewer people. But the percentage of the population 
is probably higher. Although I think we would be hard pressed to actually generate those kinds of numbers. Mm -hmm. There are some kinds of documents that might allow us to do that. I don't think anybody has actually done a, a kind of statistical study uh, that would answer that question though, definitively. Okay. So a closing question, Guido. Um, what were the long-term uh, impacts, and you spoke about one um, impact of the plague um, in terms of property ownership and stuff. What were some of the long-term impacts of the plague in society? In Italy, I think it's different from the rest of Europe. Um, across Europe, and in Italy as well, immediately there was this tremendous fear, this tremendous negative sense that the end of time was near, that God was punishing, that God was close in punishing, um, that we really have to change our ways, maybe get rid of this new society that has grown up over the last couple hundred years. But very quickly, that fell away. Um, and in fact, in Italy, it becomes a tremendously optimistic period. And scholars have been troubled by this because at first they thought this pessimism continued. And there is a strain of pessimism, no question about it. But the main strain of culture uh, is optimism about how powerful and wonderful our society is. Uh, and I think the reason for that is, again, the die-off. The die-off left the people who remained much richer than they were before. Moreover, lower class people would be, were being deeply squeezed by the changing economy, a more moneyed economy, where being at the bottom of society made life much more difficult because you didn't have much money. If you're a peasant, you know, it's how many beans you have. You know, you can grow your beans and it's harder to squeeze you, although you can, you are squeezed, no question about it. Um, and the 13th and 14th century were very good at squeezing peasants to get more out of them. But nonetheless, at the bottom of society, all of a sudden your labor became extremely valuable in these cities because mm -hmm. there was a shortage. The cloth industry, luxury cloth industry, which was a major producer of wealth in Venice, needed bodies, lower class bodies to do the work. And so Florence went out and recruited uh, lower class workers with better wages, better working conditions, better guild uh, protection. Venice needed more sailors. They went out and got sailors from the countryside, recruited them. They needed more workers in the arsenal to build their ships. They went out and got them and paid them better. So for a period across the society, people were significantly better off, even if on the whole, at the macro level, the society was poorer because there were fewer people and fewer people producing. So we have this rather strange situation, which is often called the depression of the early Renaissance, where at the macro level, things are going badly and we're in a downturn economically. But at the micro level, at the personal level, 
we're in a very positive time when things are going well for many people. And the, this questionable transition that people have been worrying about um, begins to seem to be working, begins to seem to be a positive rather than a negative transition. In fact, God doesn't come back. The end of time doesn't come. In fact, things get better and better in Florence. Things get better and better in Venice uh, for those who survive. So uh, actually, if anything, it reinforces this new vision of society, new leadership of bankers and lawyers and uh, cloth manufacturers rather than the old nobility. Um, a new, more mm, relaxed attitude about the fire-breathing preachers who are telling you that the end of the world is nigh. This is, by the way, however, punctuated from time to time by particularly effective fire-breathing preachers who panic the population and you know, bring out the deepest fears. But on the whole, those are momentary moments. And what we see is, in fact, a much more positive, optimistic vision where Italians see themselves significantly as much better than the rest of Europe and the world and the leaders of the economy and civilized life. This finally confirms something that Italians had been pushing for in the north of Italy for a while. That is that Italy, their northern Europe, their northern Italian cities are superior to what was once the measure of a superior culture and society. And that was Paris, France. Now Italy begins to claim superiority to the rest of Italy, to the rest of Europe, and continues to do so through the Renaissance. In some ways, Italy. Uh, Paris had been the measure in the Middle Ages. Italy becomes the measure after the plague and remains that way until the end of the uh, 15th century when Northern Europe invades Italy and kind of ends that, begins to end that fantasy by conquering and uh, carrying away its wealth. So the immediate impact was fear, trembling, stress. The longer term impact was this tremendous confidence that we see uh, as such a deep part of what we call the Italian Renaissance. Okay, Guido, that's an excellent note to wrap up the conversation today. Thank you for coming on the show. Okay, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk with you. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Ruggiero wrote, The Renaissance in Italy and Love and Sex in the Time of Plague. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Guido and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.